I think that was sort of the secret recipe for this project was to put together a team of sort of the best in their fields that look unlike any other architectural team that's really, you know, in Canada been put together. Welcome to Design Makes Everything Better, a podcast about design as a process for making decisions and succeeding. Today on episode three, part two, Vince interviews Omar Gandhi, founder of Omar Gandhi Architect. Now here's your host, Vince. Hello, everybody interested in the world of design. This is the podcast, Design Makes Everything Better. I am your host, Vince. Today, we had a great conversation, a part two of our conversations with Omar Gandhi. We went over his success, the challenges the office faces, the influence the office often draws on, community and social responsibility that they're taking on, and of course, the art gallery of Nova Scotia. However, my favorite part of the podcast was a great conversation around the balance of work and life, often a struggle for anyone. And it is something that I would say designers and architects are often struggling with. It's great to get his insight and the conversation was a lot of fun. Enjoy. Thanks again for coming in. I really did enjoy our last conversation. And uh, I think there's just, there's so much more that we didn't get a chance to talk about in the time that we had. So this is a really good opportunity for us to, to really extend that conversation. And there's a lot I want to talk to you about in terms of where things are going for you in, in the future and, you know, the moves that you've been making. And sure. uh, we'd like to hear a lot about that. Right off the top, I, I'm curious to what you would think of the reason for your fame. <laughs> what 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 has been some of the reasons at the core for your success if you can articulate it in such a way yeah in all honesty if you look at the success that you have the exposure that you've had how you've been cited and described in publications you know again this isn't an awards thing but how you are considered one could define that quite easily i think as as being having fame that, does it make you uncomfortable? Obviously, well, I think it does. You know, it looks like like it. A, I think what I was saying last time is taking that kind of reinforcement or feedback too seriously, mm-hmm. it's going to impact you in the same sort of way when it inevitably turns. Mm-hmm. And so I think it is wonderful that we've had such a great kind of run of projects and the kind of response we've got from it, but that's not always going to be there. And that can't mean that you're not doing good work. You know, like, I think that those are very different things. You have to kind of just stay in the middle there. You know, I don't know what it is like to have that sort of exposure that you have, but from the outsider looking in and hearing how you describe it really sounds like a a very wise place to be, to understand that it's maybe fleeting in a way. It is fleeting, but it is really nice always to get, you know, positive feedback about the work. What is it that you've think is, I certainly have my, my own opinion on it, but what is it that you feel draws people in to your work? I think that people do feel our own excitement about the work. You know, I think it shines through in the way we talk about it does. And so I think that's part of maybe the allure about it. Much like, you know, you can't 
separate the work from us, you can't separate the work from the landscape. And I think that, you know, we have the added benefit of working in a beautiful place and Mm -hmm. our work is an extension of that beautiful place. You know, I think as an isolated thing, you know, maybe people like it or don't, but it's not never a bad thing when we're working in the kind of context that we have that I think um, maybe reminds people of a time in their own memory of a place they visited or whatever. There's just kind of a rawness to the landscape that's unlike anywhere else on, on earth. And maybe that it's, there's a darkness to our work as well that I think comes from, you know, whether it's kind of some fantasy sort of level or the idea of kind of narratives that mm. are both kind of dark and bright at the same time. And so, you know, I think one of the kind of defining characteristics about our landscape is that it's harsh. You know, we have mm-hmm. beautiful summers, we have really harsh winters, and it can be windy. I, I would say that, you know, most of our work is built like something that's bracing itself somehow. That's interesting. If you see... And it looks like that. Yeah. It, it's it's funny, actually. If you uh, drive through parts of the uh, Nova Scotian landscape, even if you're up in, in Newfoundland, yeah. you see these old villages yeah. and almost all of these older homes have turned their back to the ocean. Yeah, They don't have what we yeah. see today in modern architecture with these big, beautiful, open glazed walls that have this expansive view over the horizon and the, and the ocean. They, they see the ocean as... You could see that they saw the ocean as a terrible thing in many mm-hmm. ways. It was a part of their livelihood. This is where their, you know, uh, if a lot of them were fishing villages, that was the sustenance that they needed to survive. Yep. But it was always, a, not always, but it was often a barrier. It was a wall. It wasn't a horizon that we would look like look at now with this sort of degree of opportunity. So there was a darkness then. Yeah, exactly. So, and you're, you, the way you're describing it now is that there is that darkness today. I never, I never saw that in in your work. Can you? Is there an example you can think of in one of your uh, projects that would really yeah, illustrate that a bit? Yeah, our project Trowbridge in Kingsburg, which has really like a hard shell, almost mm-hmm. completely bracing itself. It's completely steel on the one side, and there are very few openings, and then it opens up on the water side. So I would say, you know, there are a few examples of that where there's that kind of austerity, like Black Gables, for example, that yeah. also has just a very little slit from kind of the roadside and opens up gently towards the water. So I think some of that is about being private. Mm-hmm. Some of it is about protection and security. And so I think people's own sort of personality and characteristic shines through right. on that. And even with my own place in the North End, that's a good example. That definitely would shine through. Yeah, that, that privacy and yeah. kind of I wouldn't say security, but also yeah, there's something okay with being a little bit mysterious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, would you say that your clients are aware of that, or is that something that you describe to them, or do you ask them how they want to live off the water in the cases where they would be on on a yeah, I would say we never get into specifics like that, but I think that they see some of those things in other projects of ours. Mm-hmm. So it's a weird conversation that we have now versus, you know, six, seven years ago where we didn't have work to point to. Right. But now there's enough variety that, you know, people can 
gravitate towards things? And that's, you know, usually a question that I like asking up front is, you know, which ones sort of stand out? Our lookout at Broad Cove Marsh also sort of has kind of a low hanging brow Mm -hmm. facing the water. That's really kind of just, you know, just barely peeking out because the, the wind is blasting up against it and just sort of pops up one portion of the roof. So yeah, I'd say that that is a theme that I'd never really considered before, mm-hmm. but uh, I think it's it all comes down to kind of respect of what can sometimes be a very angry climate. I think you probably have come to that point a lot in your career where you are scared shitless. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And well, you must tell me a little bit about the gallery then cuz you know, this is a this is big. This is it's not big, yeah. a small project. This isn't a B level project where you have a B level response. This is as big as it gets and you have to do it as well as you possibly can. And that there must be some sort of fear or challenges or how do you feel about it? Yeah, a little bit of fear. You know, not fear in in kind of questioning whether or not we can do it. It's really just we gotta nail it. I mean, what's great is we're with KPMB who are so seasoned. Yeah that we're going to be learning a lot from them. And I think we bring a lot of enthusiasm and energy. You know, obviously you can tell by the design, there were so many people, Mm -hmm. really talented people involved that it sort of morphed into something that's unlike anyone's work. Mm -hmm. And so on that one, it was something that came up on the radar. And of course, everybody knew about it when it came out and Mm -hmm. people were reaching out to international architects and, you know, trying to sort of jockey themselves into position. Mm -hmm. I gave Bruce uh, a call and I said, this is coming on board. And he always told me he'd love to do something out here in kind of the final sort of phase of his career. And so we've been in touch for the last several years anyways. Anyways, he came down here with uh, Shirley and um, we basically had a little jam session just talking about the project and, you know, what we could do. And this is well before the RFP came out. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So, you know, I would say that maybe the best thing I've done in my career to date was put together the team Mm -hmm. because I think that was sort of the secret recipe for this project was to put together a team of sort of the best in their fields that looked unlike any other architectural team that's really, you know, in Canada been Mm -hmm. put together. And so I think that orchestration and really sort of careful consideration of how we could do things properly, it was never about a, you know, kind of pastiche or like a just checking boxes. It was about making the core team as genuine as possible Mm -hmm. uh, to relay kind of an idea. And then it really was extremely intense period of time during kind of the lead up to the competition and then over the summer for the competition itself, you know, it pushed us. It was a beautiful, beautiful collaboration, but it was really hard because, you know, you have creative people used to doing things their way. Mm -hmm. And in this case, nobody backed down. Right. It was a beautiful conflict. It was a beautiful kind of cohesive sort of process at the same time. It, it, it was just like, you know, we went through it all together and it was really hard. And in the end, the product was something more wonderful than any of us could have imagined. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Could, could you talk a little bit more about the process and how in a bit of a nuts and bolts kind of a way, like what was it that 
KPMB decided to take on and what you decided to take on and how you looped in the cultural layers that are there and mm-hmm. understanding of program. It's a, it's a complex project. Yeah. So there must have been some division of labor that made sense to you guys. How did you do that? It's funny. That was sort of not how it happened. It wasn't really about division of labor at all. It was kind of about everyone being in every meeting. Jordan Bennett sketching, you know, Bruce sketching and Shirley sketching and Jordan Rice and I sketching. And, you know, it was about uh, coming together and discussing ideas. And of course, that's not always an easy thing. It's not like everyone is, you know, everyone's going to be pulling for their own things and it could get contentious at times, but then everyone wanted the best thing. Mm -hmm. So I think it also meant that pride was put aside at times. Best idea wins. Best ideas and ideas that kept becoming better. But, you know, I'd say that was it. It was never about Elder Lorraine Whitman or Jordan coming in at some point and providing some insight. You know, Jordan did a spiral sketch right at the beginning that was one of the kind of motivations behind the scheme. And so that was it. Jordan, Bennett, and Lorraine were there meeting one, mm-hmm. sketch one, mm-hmm. you know, like they were, it was, it was right there. And so, yeah, I would say that was what made it beautiful and messy and difficult at times, but then amazing. Right. Yeah. The, the layering in of Mi'kmaq community and how, how did you integrate something so substantial in before the job is even won? Like it, it's yeah. a, it's a, it must've been difficult. And how did you do that? Yeah. I think what makes it more difficult is that, you know, it's a competition and everything's mm-hmm. really secret, right? So we did sort of the best we could. We had a group of elders who advised and they came in and met with us a few times. And of course, Jordan Bennett's body of knowledge and elder Lorraine Whitman, who, you know, it has sort of her hands in a lot of things. Um, So I think it was about being as respectful as possible, including the right people at the right time, but not really going anywhere without getting kind of, I'd say the, a blessing from the people we could talk to. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what we're doing now, which is really kind of a fundamental part of the process, and it's going to take up a good chunk of time is there's a lot of public consultation that's about to start happening and really sort of communicating further with all the people we couldn't talk to. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm imagining the challenge of being open to the edits that are required. Of course. And yeah, a real evolution. So when, when you were looking for uh, feedback from the elders, was that literally like a, a penultimate, like you would put up sketches on the wall or would you ask them like how, what did that look like? Yeah, of course, this is during kind of early days COVID as well. So, you know, we all had to be quite careful in the studio, yeah. but, you know, Bruce and Shirley and, you know, our other consultant team, Public Work and Transolar, they were all connected via Zoom, you know, on a big screen in our office. And then it was about kind of showing early ideas. But then the the main thing, you know, it was about showing ideas that came from earlier discussions, But but I would then say that the screen was off and then it was just about listening. And so people would go sort of on meandering kind of storytelling kind of sessions where they would add to it without necessarily talking about the architecture anymore. And we didn't really kind of frame that discussion too tightly. We just sort of allowed for it to become a time when people could talk. What would make people proud? 
what would be a place that they would imagine their friends and family members feeling comfortable. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of conversations are so valuable in terms of having regularly. We talked a little bit earlier about having our influences. Some offices have Louis Kahn, others have Scarpa and Mies, and the list goes on and on. But if you don't have the room for the other conversations, which are not led by what another designer has done before, but mm -hmm. it's just the input of what makes one feel comfortable. And that's especially important from people that you're designing for that don't have that architectural background and knowledge. They might come to you, like you, you were talking earlier about an interest in cars and the mm -hmm. jokes that you might have in the office of other things that might play into and feed into work. I don't feel that that happens enough in in schools, for example, it's not right. brought into a, a regular dialogue, but it's what certainly motivates us. It's mm -hmm. not another restaurant that's been done that's or right. another retail space or another building, or it's something else completely different that ends up being the thing that you hold on to that is really valuable. So, you know, when you're talking about listening to whomever it was that was talking, they might have the most important piece of insight that isn't about another building that isn't yeah. about another thing specifically, but it's just an emotive yeah. piece, that emotive response to something which is so valuable. You can't, you that's know, right. You and and I think that. in that discussion, what was most valuable was understanding that even though we may not understand this, there are spaces, there are places where people inherently feel unwelcome. Mm -hmm. And that is something that we tried to focus on. Mm -hmm. It isn't about making everyone, you know, it isn't going after the mass, you know, it's about really kind of taking the time to understand how a place could become slightly skewed or different to welcome the people who feel the most excluded. Mm -hmm. And that, that was really sort of a driving force behind the art gallery scheme. I want to change course just a, a little bit. There's something that I've I've wanted to ask you. Relationships are so important with your clients. You described that earlier about being able to select clients that seem like a good fit. We do the same thing all the time. And sometimes it just doesn't work out. Yep. Sometimes you make a bad call and you think it's going to be great, but for whatever it is, not that anybody is doing something that they didn't promise to do. It's just the fit isn't there yep. and we have to walk away from clients and, and we do everything we can yep. to set them up and we find another office for them to work with and partner with. Like it hasn't happened much at all, but mm -hmm. it does. No, happen. it happens. And it, of it course. sits heavy sometimes when it does. How do you do that? And how do you deal with that if it does happen? You know, I think there are easy jobs and there are tough jobs. And I think at the end of the day, even if it's a situation where it's less than ideal for whatever reason, no mm -hmm. one's fault, I think it's about just being professional and kind of focusing on the work. So in those situations where we've had to, I'm trying to think of an example, but you know, I know that there was, I think I've just blacked it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> the psychology requirements as a designer, right? Yeah, you, you exactly. Have to, you, you, 
those those challenging times you have to put them behind you because if they're in the forefront of your mind all the time you just you're you're paralyzed right well and there's you enough of these things you yeah. know not necessarily that but you know it's scary running a business it's tough totally you know all that sort of stuff is it can be you know a lot you got to just kind of keep trekking forward so yeah. have you ever just wanted to hang your hat and say I've, i'm done like has it been that because you you live a you've got a lot on the go yeah. Is, have yeah, you uh, wanted to just hang it up at times? Yeah, I'd say I'd ne- I, I've never wanted to hang it up, but I do at times miss when it was just Jeff and I. Mm. And I remember then I was just like, I really wish we were big. <laughs> <laughs> but grass is but, always greener. Of course. Yeah. But, you know, there was something really kind of like fun and hilarious about just a couple people like trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't a whole lot of pressure because we hadn't achieved anything. So you have nothing to lose, right? Yeah. We were just kind of going for it and kind of going for it for ourselves. And, you know, not like I feel pressure. I think we talked about this last time. That's one thing for some reason I don't feel is the pressure. And again, that's just because I don't pay a lot of attention to what's going on around, mm-hmm. nor would I have any plan of deviating from the way that we approach things. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like two different things. I, I think it's really fun to just be a fan of architecture mm-hmm. and design and not feel like things that are really good are some way a threat to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You're not taking it personally. No, I mean, to you. yeah, no, I, I, one of the things I love, I travel a lot. I love hotels. Mm. And there is nothing I love more than just sort of appreciating the amazing design that goes into cool hotel spaces. It is the best. Mm -hmm. And and it's like one of those things that I find to be most inspiring is kind of design at different scales. But that's one of them that really kind of gets me going. It's just like, wow, this is really cool. When you're in Toronto, because you you have the Toronto office as well, you have a place to stay. You have your own apartment. I had an apartment and I got rid of that maybe six months before COVID, some lucky reason. It was just like... Seriously, eh? Yeah, I just wasn't... I was trying to tone down the traveling there a little bit. And um, so then I started staying in hotels most of the time, which was also fun. Right. Yeah. So that must be challenging back and forth as often, even if you do love traveling, work travel is different. How do you balance that out in life? Yeah, it was but for about five years, I was going back and forth every week or maybe 10 days or so, you know, excluding other places I had to travel. And really, that was only possible because it's going to sound hilarious. It was only possible because my marriage fell apart and all of a sudden I had half of the time when (laughs) I wasn't a parent. And so, you know, part of that is funny Part of that is really sad sad. because it kind of just meant that when I didn't have my son, when I had my son, I tried to be the best dad I could. Uh, But when I didn't, I just got out of here. And I think that was, you know, maybe just uh, trying to be as productive as possible in the time that I had some flexibility Mm. that really kind of spawned the whole Toronto office. That's interesting. Yeah. It was just sort of like, you know, the anxiety and sadness or whatever that comes from something like that. And the only cure for it, at least for me, is to just like, just put Start in the work. new. 
yeah, put in the work and finding some sort of comfort in the work. You sound like a seasoned business person when you, when you speak like that in the sense of if you'd listen to other business people talk about living within your means is not necessarily to, to extend yourself to a point of discomfort, but that you can choose to do the things that you want to do as opposed to living a life by requirement because you have to do certain things because you have to keep that money coming through. And you're exactly you're running your office in that regard, right? You're not motivated yep. by just make it bigger. You know, like a lot of people talk about the number of employees they have in their office as a signal to the success of that office. Right. And it's not, no, it's not the case at all. No, exactly. Yeah. I think part of it is fear. Part of it is worrying too much. And the other part of it is just pure selfishness. Like I just, I can't work on things that we're not inspired by Mm -hmm. or people who, you know, here's a weird little side thing. I've always sort of felt like uh, this is hilarious. I don't know why I'm saying this out loud. I've always kind of had this feeling like you only have so many good projects in the tank, like over the course of your career. Uh, this is like anxiety talking. No, I think that's 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 fantastic. That and I feel makes a lot of sense to me. sort of like I'm careful about where those go. I I I've always liked you a lot, and I just. <laughs> I continue to like you more and more, and I, I think we could probably talk forever. I What I want to do, I do want to um, close with a, a fun series of uh, rapid-fire questions with you. Yep. But before we get there, um, I'd, l- I'd like, why don't you just describe for me where um, your uh, North End office sure. uh, is is within the context of the, the work that you do and what, what's motivating that and, uh, and how's it going? Yeah. So it's, uh, it is coming along. Like I'm really, really happy with it. It was an empty property and looking back at the archives, it actually has been empty for like the foreseeable sort of, or yeah, like the, yeah, yeah, I think it was a, there was a shed on the property to the attached Mm. building. And it's fairly narrow, so I don't think really anyone saw an opportunity there. But it was really, I think, primarily about building a home for myself and my son. The North End is where I spend most of my time. Most of my friends live, Mm -hmm. you know, in the Hydrostone or the North Mm -hmm. End. So it was about, you know, I think part of it was affordability, what I could afford to buy a piece of land, which was pretty cool to be able to buy something in the middle of the city but also it not being something where I had to demolish something. So I think in terms of the office itself, that was always kind of slated to be on the ground floor with two floors above that. And over time, it has sort of evolved to not really knowing what part of the office was going to be there. Or I think for a while it was going to be the whole office, but it's really just too small. And, you know, we've continued to grow incrementally. So we're planning on staying here in the port area for the future, which is great because it means we get to be close to you guys. Yeah, and we just love, love, love being of, of down here. Yeah. You can't find spaces like this anywhere. No. It's very fairly priced and it's it's just it's such a cool part of the city. Mm-hmm. Okay. So some rapid fire questions. <laughs> so this isn't anything to be taken seriously. Here we go. What is your favorite city? Favorite city is uh, Berlin. I thought you were going to say Halifax. 
Yes, after <laughs> Halifax. Yeah. Yes. Berlin. Yeah. I, I You've traveled there a fair bit. Berlin. Yeah. Just the attitude, the fact that it, you know, the sort of dark history of the place is left for everyone to see. It isn't sort of erased. And to um, learn from. And to learn from. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's incredible. The, another place I love is Mexico City. I can't wait to be able to go back there. I've been to Mexico a lot, but I have never been down to Mexico City or up in yeah. Mexico standards. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, uh, I don't want to say it's Europe and North America, but it, it has kind of, uh, an intensity like you would see in Asia and a historic fabric that you would see in Europe, uh, incredible weather, but just mm -hmm. the design and the style and the food and the, you know, it's, it's a lot of things. Yeah. What is an object or thing that you feel was designed exceptionally well? So there are, you know, different kind of aspects of my place that I'm trying to take to a really fun next level for our own office, you know, designing You're different- You're talking about your home? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so one of the things I'm designing is a door lever and it is really difficult. And, you know, you really sort of like- appreciate, you know, the abilities of industrial designers mm -hmm. and people who make these things, you know, and Arne, Arne Jakobsen kind of like lever is just so beautifully mm -hmm. considered. Unlike architecture, I think that there's even less room for play, right? I, I think that there are, you know, things that are really sort of functional and cheap and yeah. organic yeah. and you know there's just so much and and I feel like the intricacies amongst all those things so I'm I'm playing yeah and and as I'm playing I'm appreciating and falling in love with design yeah. again it's one of the reasons why I love the process of designing in in hospitality yeah. and retail environments cuz they your clients are expecting you to design a chair or they're expecting you to design a booth or piece of furniture or the edge of the bar detail. Like it, it, it is an expectation for a level of detail, a, a set of drawings, for example, on a restaurant compared to a set of drawings that I may have done at a previous architectural office would of in, in comparison would be like a nine story office building compared to a 1000 square foot restaurant is almost the same number of drawings and details, but you just go into it in such detail. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it is a lot of fun. What is something that you found that you see, which is fundamentally different than most people? I would say that I'm not a huge fan of Leonard Cohen. Oh, I'm okay. sorry. That is fundamentally different than most yes. people. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I can't. I feel like some That's of those funny, things hey? I've I've really tried. Right. And like it's we're pretty far down the line in terms of life now. Yeah, yeah. You can say that. <laughs> you don't worry about yeah, anybody like, judging you for it. Yeah, I get it. You know, like no, I I don't. But that's okay. I think that's it. It's just appreciating that, you know, people like different things, okay. but I tried. If you're entertaining guests at home, do you cook or order in? Definitely cook. Oh yeah. What's Definitely your, cook. do you, do you have a favorite dish that you do? I like cooking kind of messy. Like I'm not, I'm not. A one pot chef kind yeah, of Yeah, a little thing. bit of that. Or, you know, uh, I was just at uh, Eric's place the other day and he was just, you know, he had three cast irons sort of like going at the same time. So I think I really love cooking. I'm also someone who gets kind of like anxious and 
and sort of nervous about it. Like there were people who were amazing hosts. Yeah. And I really aspire to be like that, <laughs> you know, where you're there and they're making it in front of you and, yeah. you know, they're like, here, chop this. Some have a knack. It's so cool, it's, right? It is, yeah, it's so true. I love that. I do fumble a little bit as well. What book do you most often give as a gift? What's his name again? I think it's Ted Barber. Mm -hmm. I think that's his name. It's a barbecue book and I've given it to like four people. Someone right. gave it to me and it's just this, you know, this guy who obviously loves eating and making like really, like he's not messing around, right? Right. This like, is the book that you give to the guests of whom, whose house you'd like to go to so that exactly. you don't have to feel nervous and anxious, right? That's right. <laughs> it's just like, you know, it's just good barbecue food. What is a skill or talent that you have that would surprise most people? I, I was a double A pitcher. Oh yeah? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. I knew that you liked baseball, but. Yeah, I love baseball. Like, I think I love baseball more than I like architecture. Do you, when you're in Toronto, you must see the Jays a lot? I do. All right, Omar. I think the world of you and I hope for your continued success and uh, that those list of great projects will not run out and they'll just continue and continue. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your time. Thanks for listening to the Design Makes Everything Better podcast by Breakhouse, a Canadian strategic design firm. This was part two of episode three with Omar Gandhi of Omar Gandhi Architect. A full transcript and show notes can be found at breakhouse.ca slash podcast slash 3.2. If you like the show, help us out. Subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast app and share us with your friends. Have feedback or ideas for the show? Drop us a line at podcast at breakhouse.ca.